Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 16, Genesis chapter 16. When last we met, we were discussing the covenant with Abraham. And we had talked about how God had told him some things in a vision that made Abraham pretty upset, bothered him a lot, because it said, God told him, Abraham, you're going to be, you and your descendants are going to be sent out of this land. As a matter of fact, it's going to be a long time before you actually possess this land. And in the interim, for a long period of time, your descendants, your children, your grandchildren are going to become slaves in a foreign land. And of course, we all know now that that's certainly true. All right? That was in Egypt. And he, they said that it was going to be four generations before they would return. So with that, let's take a look at Genesis 15. Open your Bibles to verse 12, Genesis 15. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and we'll pick up there. Genesis Chapter 15, verse 12. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 14. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avram, Abraham. Horror and great darkness came over him. Adonai said to Avram, Know this for certain. Your descendants will be foreigners in a land that's not theirs. They'll be slaves and held in oppression there for 400 years. But I will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves. Afterwards, they'll leave with many possessions. Now, as for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here. Because only then will the Amori, Amorites be ripe for punishment. Now, after the sun had set and there was a thick darkness, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these animal parts. That day, Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I have given this land to your descendants, from the body of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the territory of the Kenai, the Kenizi, the Kadmoni, the Hitti, the Prezi, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Kenani, the Girgashi, and the Busi. Now, let's look at verses 15 and 16 a little closer. But before I do, I also want you to notice something that now just frankly just caught my eye. And this happens a lot as we, as we do this. Something will catch my eye that I never saw before. And it's the tense of the words. He says, no, I have given you this land. It's a past tense. It's done. He wasn't going to. It was already a done deal by the time he told him. Now, in verses 15 and 16, as I've taught you on a few occasions, we talk here about death and dying. And dying and going to heaven in Abraham's era was, was a non-existent concept. Okay? In fact, that concept 
of dying and going to heaven is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. What existed after bodily death, they didn't know. It's very hazy. And in the number of references to death and the very descriptions of what death must have been like in an afterlife, you can see that the Hebrews had no real clear doctrine of what came after death in the Old Testament. Now, particularly in the era of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore the era of the Torah, right? perhaps the most common term we're going to find, particularly applied to the great men of the Bible, like the patriarchs, like, like for Abraham, is going to your fathers or going to your ancestors in peace. Right? We hear that term, some, some variation of that thing. Now, what exactly did that mean? Okay, well, it's not well explained, and I can't find an ancient source that gives me any confidence that the people of that day knew what it meant beyond a very general kind of sense either. It seems to me that going to your fathers in peace was more or less a gentle non-onerous way of talking about death. Today, we tend to speak of someone beloved who has died as past or passing away, has passed away. Right? I underline beloved because when we're speaking of a wicked person, we tend not to use the words passed away, do we? I mean, I guarantee you when the day comes that Saddam Hussein is likely executed, it won't be reported that he passed away. Yet, in the most literal sense of these words, passing or past, there's not much we can take as to what passing entailed, or what, what they thought it meant. Now, in general, in his era, okay, living to a ripe old age and then going to meet your fathers in peace was the best anyone hoped for. Right? It simply indicated that they lived out a full lifespan and that they more or less died naturally of old age. Now, this as opposed to being cut off, correct, right? meaning they died early or they were murdered or they were executed for a crime or it was determined, perhaps, that your death was a judgment from the Lord for some transgression. Now, did they actually expect to go and meet their ancestors in some form or another when they died. Yeah, I think in a vague way, perhaps. Right? It was a hope. It was about the best outcome one could expect from the always unwelcome end of life. Right? So in our story, Abraham was essentially promised that he would live out a very full lifespan and that his death would be of old age and that he would die in peace with God, not from judgment or wrath or violence at the hands of another. Now we're going to come back in a few minutes to some other important fundamentals right, concerning the word generations. 
all right, and the identity of the Amori or the Amorites. But I'd rather finish this covenant-making process before we went there. Well, the next thing that happens is that the most important part of the covenant ceremony takes place. In verse 17, we have the makers of the covenant pass, as is custom, between the pieces of the animal, which has been cut up and divided into two piles. Now, what we find, though, what we're told is that what actually passed between these two piles of animal parts right, is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Smoke and fire usually represents the presence of God in the Bible. So God walked between these pieces. Right. And this signified his agreement. Right. And, and it was his word that he would keep the terms of the covenant. Now notice, Abraham did not walk between the pieces. Right. And this is very key. Why? Because this was a unilateral covenant. Right. This was not a two-way deal. Okay. This was entirely on God. God made promises and God had obligations. Abraham did not. Okay. Everything promised from this covenant was up to God to make it happen. Abraham couldn't foul it up. Now, in verses 18 through 20, as Yahweh is in the midst, is, is amidst these separated piles of animal flesh. God recites the terms of the covenant, and it includes the calling out of the boundaries of the land that he is giving to Abraham and to his descendants for all time. Now, while the exact location of these boundaries can be disputed to a small degree, the fact is that they extend well beyond what Israel Abraham's descendants have ever occupied to this very day. Israel was at its peak territorial size during the time of the kingdoms of uh, David and Solomon. And if you have some of these names, you will perhaps recognize. For instance, Damascus. Where's Damascus? Syria. Okay. This is Syria, and you have Lebanon on up, on up this direction. Right. And of course, here is the Jordan River. And a large part of this area that Solomon and, um, uh, rather, David and Solomon occupied was modern-day Jordan. Right? And even all this isn't as big as the land is going to be eventually. Sometime in the near future, Israel is going to be larger than it has ever been. Now, let me be very clear. For those who want to say that either the Bible doesn't say just what land mass constitutes the promised land or that this covenant is ended, just read the covenant. Okay? It's quite literal. To the south, the boundary is called the body of Egypt. That is not the Nile River. All right? It is indeed a wadi all right, that goes, in, goes through, this, through the uh, Sinai. Right. This is the area of the Sinai down here. Um, 
After identifying the southern border, the northern border is said to be the Great River. Well, the Great River is the Euphrates. Where is the Euphrates today? Iraq. You starting to get the picture? How big this is? This is this is this is the Euphrates going all the way down here. Here's Ur. Off the map down here in this corner is the Persian Gulf. Okay. The eastern and western boundaries are a little less explicit because it refers to the location by means of areas certain tribes occupied. It goes by the tribal names. Right. However, the western boundary is obviously the Mediterranean Sea and the land beyond that. Right. And the location of these tribes is very well attested to as including land to the east of the Jordan River running along here. Right. Um, and so it will include all the kingdom of Jordan. It will include a great deal of what is modern day Iraq. It will even include part of an area of Saudi Arabia right down here in this corner. It's a big hunk of land that God promised them. And guess what? They're going to get it. You know why? Because God already gave it to them. It was a done deal. That's why I wanted to point that out. God said, I've already given it to you, Abraham. Don't you understand? It's done. I'm not gonna. It's done. Now, before we move on, um, I want to stop here just for a second. I made this up at the last minute. Kind of throw it in. Hopefully, I hope you can see this fairly well. Give you some idea. This is the outline Right, this funny looking triangular mass is this. Okay? Trying to give you a better idea of just where we're talking about. And you can see what an enormous piece of land we're talking about. Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, all of all of Jordan, good hunk of Saudi Arabia. Um, big piece of land. That, that, that all of this is going to be given to... This, this is what's going to be occupied in the millennium. Okay, That's where we're going to live, guys. Get used to it. Like the desert? Now, before we move into chapter 16, we need to face the difficulties associated with the definition of the term generation. Right. And with the length of time Israel was going to be in Egypt. Now, now, first of all, the Hebrew word for generation is dor. Right? D-O-R, dor. And despite what some might think, that term is not all that concrete. Right? Because it certainly can mean how we typically think of a generation, meaning the the span of time between the birth of children and the birth of their parents. Okay? And, and it can also refer to a complete lifespan of a single individual. Right? It can even refer, in the Bible, to all those people living and present during a certain event. For instance, when the, the Bible refers to that generation which left Egypt, well, it wasn't one generation of people it was several right but it called it referred to that as a generation 
We also find, of course, that the traditional lifespan of people in the Bible varies a great deal. So the point is the arguments as to just how long a biblical generation is is not likely to ever be answered because the fact of the matter is it's a general and not a specific term. Okay? So as to the answer of what a generation means in the Bible, we have to say that it means different things at different times and it carries a very fluid and indeterminate meaning. So don't get all balled up about whether a generation is 40 years, like some people think, or 50 or 60 or 100. Just put that away. All right, That's, that's generally from scholars, I guess, who started reading the Bible at Matthew. All right, Instead of going back and, and noticing that it's just an indeterminate amount of time. Now, the next item that I would like uh, to approach is the difficulties about the length of time Israel was going to spend in Egypt. Now, honest scholarship reveals that we cannot easily say four centuries and just leave it at that. Okay. Here in Genesis 15, the time is referred to and one place is 400 years and another place is 400 generations. Thus, we've had some people say, oh, well, then a generation is 100 years. At least it wasn't Abraham's day. Yet Exodus 1240 tells us that their stay in Egypt was 430 years. Further, we know that there was a time before the death of Joseph when Israel was an honored guest of Egypt and not not slaves yet, um, but there's no solid information on the amount of time that elapsed between the death of Joseph and then the beginning of Israel's oppression. In other words, whatever amount of time they spent down there, they weren't slaves the whole time at all. Right? Now, generally speaking, rabbinical tradition is that the 400-year period begins with the birth of Isaac, all right, and that the 430-year figure begins with the day this covenant that we've been talking about with Abraham was made official. Okay. We're told in the Bible that 190 years passed from the birth of Isaac until Jacob took his small family down to Egypt. We know that much. Okay? So if the rabbis are right, then Israel was not in Egypt 400 years, but only 210. 190 plus 210 equals the 400 that was talked about. Now to explain this problem, they say that being in a foreign land included some of the time in Canaan before they moved to Egypt. And if we look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, or, or even the Samaritan version of the Torah, right, we're going to find that those manuscripts specifically state that the period of 430 years included some time in Canaan. So, guys, it's all over the map. All right? Obviously, we have a problem with ascertaining with certainty the actual amount of time Israel spent in Egypt. But remember, there is no disagreement 
that they indeed did go to Egypt and they were there a long time. All right, and they were subjugated and they were oppressed. No disagreement there. Now, this is why a couple weeks ago I talked about redaction, editing. Right? The major time problems that occur in the Torah occur primarily when the Torah was translated into foreign languages, which is itself a redaction. Okay. And yet we also know that until the invention of the printing press in the 1400s AD, all copying of books and therefore Bibles was done by hand. So without doubt, some type of numerical error was introduced either through innocent mistake or more likely, in my opinion, some misguided soul all right, that attempted to reconcile what seemed to him to be a chronological conflict and just made it worse. And once that happens, it's really hard to recover the original until an earlier version yet is found. I will tell you in advance that because of little other alternative, I go with the teaching that Israel was 400 years in Egypt until somebody can conclusively prove it otherwise to me. That's what I go with. Okay. Now finally, what does that statement at the end of verse 16 mean? The one that says, and they shall return here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Kind of an odd statement. Well, first, <clears throat> it's good to know that the Amorites had become synonymous with the terms Canaanites by this time. Canaanite, Amorite, all the same thing. All right, That's not technically true, but that's what the people of Canaan were ultimately called. All right, Amorites and Canaanites. So... The reason for this was that the Amorite culture had become the dominant culture in the land of Canaan and so the general term for those folks living in Canaan at that time was Amorites. Now, the part about the iniquity not being complete simply means that the timing of Israel coming back from Egypt back up to the land of Canaan had much to do with when the residents of Canaan have finally crossed over some l line of evil that God drew in the sand right, that only God knows where it was. Right? That, that, that their wicked ways had finally become too much. Right? And Yahweh was ready then. All right, to have them driven out of their land in divine judgment for that wickedness and displaced by Israel. And you know what? We're going to see this sort of thing repeated all the time. We wonder, why does God allow these wicked nations to prosper for a time and do the things he does? Right? Well, he was going to allow the Amorites, frankly, to ready the land in his eyes for Israel to come back up out of Egypt in all of their wickedness, somehow they were going to accomplish something that he wanted done before they came back. And that timing was dependent on when their iniquity had reached this point. God said, I won't tolerate it anymore. Of course, he foreknew when this was going to be. 
Now, this is really an interesting clue about how, how Yahweh operates. In some intricate way that certainly is beyond me to fathom, God uses the acts of the wicked to achieve his purposes even to the ultimate benefit of his own people. Further, this also indicates God's absolute foreknowledge of all things. Everything is in front of him. He knows in advance when the wickedness of the Amorites is going to reach some critical mass. At the same time, he knows in advance when his people Israel are going to be ready to leave Egypt. And he knows in advance all of these things, including that the Pharaoh of Egypt will have oppressed his people too much so that God will be justified in smiting the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. All of these things had to play together. And then all these things had to converge at some precise moment in history such that the exodus would occur and then a little later Joshua would lead Israel to conquer the land of Canaan and make it theirs. Let's move on to chapter 16 tonight. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a fairly short chapter. Chapter 16 of Genesis. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne him a child. But she had an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. So Sarai said to Avram, Here now, Adonai has kept me from having children, so go in and sleep with my slave girl. Maybe I'll be able to have children through her. Avram listened to what Sarai said. It was after Avram had lived ten years in the land of the Canaanite that Sarai, Avram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to Avram, her husband, to be his wife. Now, Avram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she conceived. But when she became aware that she was pregnant, she looked on her mistress with contempt. Sarai said to Avram, This outrage being done to me is your fault. True, I gave my slave girl to you to sleep with, but when she saw that she was pregnant, she began holding me in contempt. May Adonai decide who is right, I or you. However, Avram answered Sarai, Look, she's your slave girl. Deal with her as you think fit. Then Sarai treated her so harshly that she ran away. Well, the angel of Adonai found her by a spring in the desert and the spring on the road to Shur and said, Hagar, Sarai's slave girl, where have you come from and where are you going? And she answered, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of Adonai said to her, go back to your mistress and and submit to her authority. And the angel of Adonai said to her, I will greatly increase your descendants. There will be so many it will be impossible to count them. The angel of Adonai said to her, look, you're pregnant and you're going to give birth to a son. You're going to call him Ishmael because Adonai has paid attention to your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, living his life at odds with all his kinsmen. So she named um, Adonai who had spoken with her El Roy, God of seeing or God sees me. Because she said, have I really seen the one who sees me and lived? This is why the well has been called Be'er L'chai Roy, well of the ones who lives and sees. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. 
Hagar bore Avram a son, and Avram called the son whom Hagar had borne him Ishmael. Avram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Avram. Well, we're now at a time that's about 10 years after Avram, Abraham, left his father and his brother in Haran of Mesopotamia, had journeyed south into the promised land. Up here, Haran, up in the area of Mesopotamia, journeyed south down into the, the promised land. And a lot's happened in that 10 years. Okay? Avram and his family were forced to sojourn for a time down in Egypt because the land of Canaan was experiencing a famine. And while in Egypt, Avram's wife, Sarai, was taken by Pharaoh, um, to be part of his harem. But later, she was returned when Pharaoh found out that Sarai was Abraham's wife and not just his sister, as Abraham and Sarai had implied. Well, Abraham and his family were virtually kicked out of Egypt. And so they went back up to Canaan and they were a lot wealthier when they went back up there. And then they had to part company with their nephew Lot and Lot's family when the herds and flocks of their animals had grown so large that the animals were outstripping the pasture land that they had shared and it was creating trouble among the herdsmen. Well, Lot, if you recall, moved to Sodom, right? Down by the Dead Sea. Where are we here? Yep, down by the Dead Sea. All right, and sometime later, several allied kings came from the north, right? Down here to uh, uh, land of Canaan with their armies to put down a tax rebellion in the district where Lot lived. And Lot and his family were kidnapped in the process. And his captives on their way back up north to become slaves to these kings from Mesopotamia, they were rescued by Abraham and 318 men from Abraham's clan. And of course, upon his triumphant return from freeing Lot, Avram meets the mysterious Melchizedek. And shortly thereafter, Yahweh, using the customary Middle Eastern covenant ceremony, confirms his covenant with Abraham, promising Abraham protection, wealth, land, and an heir, by definition, a son. What went on over this decade? But to this point, Abraham's barren wife, Sarai, was still barren. And she hadn't produced children. And Sarai had her very own servant girl named Hagar. She was an Egyptian. And Sarai decided to solve the problem of her being childless by using Hagar as a surrogate mother. Now, Hebrew tradition is that Hagar was a gift from Pharaoh when Abraham had his little excursion down in Egypt some years earlier. In fact, she supposedly was a princess from Pharaoh's own household. Right, now, in a completely usual and normal tradition for that day, Sarai offered Hagar to Abraham as a substitute. That is, Hagar would have Abraham's child, but technically, as per the tradition of the era, the child would belong to Abraham and Sarai. Now, notice that the scripture doesn't really say that Abraham married Hagar. It does use the term wife, and we'll talk about that. 
It says Sarai gave her to him as or like a wife. In other words, she was a substitute, a concubine. She was a baby-making machine. Okay, But there was no marriage involved here. No way. Which is not only the ancient Hebrew view. It makes sense within the context of the verses, whereas some translations labeling her as Abraham's wife just don't. Okay, She remained a handmaiden to Sarai. All right, as Abraham affirms in verse 6. And in verse 9, the angel of the Lord tells her to go back and submit to her mistress, Sarai. If Hagar was a true wife, she would no longer have been under Sarai. She would have been an equal. Further, she wouldn't belong to Sarai at all. She would have been transferred to Abraham. Okay. Now, while the Bible doesn't give much detail about all, about all this concubine, wife, substitute, childbearer stuff worked in that day. It is clear from records of other Middle Eastern cultures of Abraham's time that what we read in this story very much follows those laws and traditions. The law codes of Ur-Namu that date back to 2100 BC, 300 years, 200 years perhaps, before Abraham, uh, show this exact tradition in their law, as do uh, the laws of Hammurabi from around 1800 BC, which is Abraham and Jacob's time. Now, and these laws make it very clear that the way it works is that the barren wife who takes this serious step of making her servant girl a concubine for her husband puts the wife. Sarai, in this case, in a lower social position in the eyes of the people. Okay. Legally, nothing changed. The concubine does not gain extra rights, nor does she achieve equality with or supplant the authority of the barren wife. And just as we see in this story, it must have happened regularly that this tradition of using a servant as a surrogate mother created all kinds of problems. Okay. I mean, listen to this law directly taken from the law code of Ur-Namu. It says this, If the servant girl, comparing herself to her mistress, speaks insolently to her, right, it goes on. I mean, doesn't that sound exactly like what's happening here with Sarai and Hagar? This is the whole problem. Okay. Let me also point out that it was also customary that the handmaiden of a wife belonged solely to the wife. Okay. She was the wife's property, not the husband's. Okay. The husband didn't own the handmaiden servant and then just allow the wife the use of her. Hagar belonged to Sarai. She, Abraham had no say. Okay. And this is really important to understand our story. The context, okay? Because when the wife, in this case, Sarai said, I want this servant girl out of here, right? That was that. She didn't need Abraham's approval. Not at all. She was just basically telling him. And what did he say? Well, hey, she's yours. Do with her what you want. I don't know why you're bugging me with all this. Isn't that what he said? All right. 
Now, it was now the pregnant Hagar's, uh, the now pregnant Hagar's attempt to behave as an equal to Sarai that prompted Sarai to literally drive Hagar out of the camp. So, I mean, something perfectly within Sarai's legal and social jurisdiction to decide. Had she not done that, the other women would have lost all respect for her. Okay. So in verse 6, when Sarai goes to Abraham angry as a hornet and tells him she's not happy with this situation, Abraham says, your maid is in your hands, deal with her as you think is right. Okay. She just didn't go seeking permission, she just wanted to gripe. Now, as she drove Hagar away, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar and tells her that she's to return and be under Sarai's authority. Now verses 11 and 12 say that Hagar told, was told she'd have a boy child and that his, this, this child would produce an enormous number of descendants. And Ishmael, meaning God pays attention or God has given heed, right, was to be this child's name. Well, then God pronounces what the child's destiny is going to be. Now, of course, this is referring not only to the child, but to the child's descendants, actually more to the descendants than to the child. And this destiny is that Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man. In other words, he's just totally untamed. All right? Going against everybody. All right? And that he's going to live in the presence of his, kis of his kinsmen. Now, while Ishmael is the patriarch of several races and lines, primarily he's remembered for creating the Arab people. Okay. And notice where the land of the Arabs, Arabia, right, eventually came to be, east of Israel. Remember I told you, watch out for east. Okay. It's important to remember today in our time that Abraham is indeed the true father of both the Arabs and the Israelites. Or as I begun to enjoy calling them, the Ishmaelites and the, Ar and, and the Israelites. And that both the Arab peoples and the Israelites are from the line of Shem. Shem okay? And they are Semites, both. But even so, Another of God's divisions is going to take place. And we're going to see that occur in the next chapter. But let us also remember that in our time, what the TV evening news anchors call Arabs rarely actually are. Most of the time, these people they identify as Arabs are actually Persians or Egyptians are a whole bunch of people, not from the line of Shem, but from the line of Ham. All right? Totally different from the true Arabs who were from the line of Shem. Now what the news tends to do, basically, is identify every Muslim, which is a religion, as an Arab, which is a gene pool, it's a family line, All right? which is completely incorrect. But they've never been known for worrying much about that, have they? Now, before we move forward, let's take a moment with this term, 
the angel of the Lord that we saw in verse 11. Now, I'll tell you the truth. I'd almost rather not do this. But I know that many of you are probably eager and loaded for bear about this topic. Um, The thing is, angels, let alone angel, the angel of the Lord, is a difficult concept and a difficult theological issue. Because there are many reasonable people who disagree on what this all means. But studying the original Hebrew really kind of helps to cut through it. Now, first of all, the Hebrew word that many will say is the word for angel is malach. M-A-L-A-C-H, malach. But actually, angel is a mistranslation of that word. The term malach doesn't mean angel. It simply means messenger. And standing by itself, it could mean any kind of messenger or agent. In the Bible, it's often used that way. Lots of people in the Bible are called malach. It's when the term Adonai or Yahweh gets added to the word, coupled with it, such as Malach Adonai or Malach Yahweh, that the Hebrews consider the word Malach no longer meaning a messenger in the human sense, but rather meaning an angel in the spiritual sense. In other words, by associating the name of God with the word Malach, we get an angel, a spirit messenger, if you would, from God. Now, in the Greek, the word for angel is angelos, which, like Hebrew, technically means messenger. And just like in Hebrew, angeloi can mean simply any kind of messenger, not necessarily a heavenly messenger. But as happens with words over the centuries, their meaning and use can change. And with the advent of Gentile Christianity, angeloi, which when used in the scriptures, came to mean in every case a messenger from God, an angel. That's just what we started to do. The problem here is that there are several places where our English Bible say angel, and it probably, within the cultural context, didn't mean angel at all. It was simply referring to a human messenger or some unknown messenger or agent. Um, So from the Hebrew point of view, if the word malach, messenger, is used all by itself, it's almost always something other than a heavenly messenger. It's usually just a man. Add the word Adonai or Yahweh to it, and this messenger becomes what we call an angel. The problem is, the usual English translation approach is that the translators take the word malach when used all by itself and make it angel, and then when Adonai gets added to it, it becomes this thing called an angel of the Lord. You see the problem? which has been taken to mean some kind of very high or very special angel. What I'm telling you is is that a result of allegory and hyperbole and just plain fantasy, Christian writers have taken every instance of the word malach in scripture and turned it into a heavenly messenger, an angel, which in many cases it wasn't. 
Okay. Even more, as a result of that misguided approach, when they say the words Malach Yahweh, they translated that to angel of the Lord. Right? Um, and assumed it was some special type of angel or even perhaps some kind of manifestation of God himself. Now, actually, in general, the only time the word angel, meaning a spirit being sent from God, should appear in our Bibles, that word should even appear, angel, is when the words angel of the Lord are written. You see what I'm saying? Okay. In reality, angels are barely even mentioned in Scripture. It's our traditions that have multiplied their presence, amplified their purpose, and humanized their form. Okay, So the search for the elusive angel of the Lord is a snipe hunt. You know what a snipe hunt is? Anybody ever been on a snipe hunt? Yeah, oh, me too. I don't know why I never caught one. Anyway, I tell you this not so much to provide a good explanation, which I didn't, of what this angel of the Lord is, but rather to point out why it has proven to be such a source of disagreement in scholarly argument, and it's not a new argument. Going back before the time of Christ, okay, the Pharisees had worked out this elaborate hierarchy of angel spiritual beings, little of which came from scripture, and therefore is mostly tradition. Okay. The Sadducees, contemporaries of the Pharisees, didn't even believe that such a thing as an angel existed. Did you know that? Okay. The Essens had their own understanding of angels, and quite different from the Pharisees. And what most people don't know is that it was the Essen theology of angels that basically became the Christian angelology system that we have today. Everything we think we know about angels pretty much came from the essence. All right. Well, in any case, what exactly the angel of the Lord is, we don't know. Was it a special kind of angel? Was it another manifestation of God, like the Logos or the, the Holy Spirit? Was it a specific angel that God set aside for certain tasks? Was it God? taking on the form of an angel, whatever that form is. Okay. Probably most times a malak is not an angel except when the word Adonai is attached to it. Probably meaning that all true angels should be called angels of the Lord. One thing does seem certain though. The being that spoke to Hagar, whether this is a regular angel or this more special angel or God himself, this was a spirit being for sure. This was not a human. All right. This was not a human manger, a messenger. And I think, other than that slim fact, the rest I'll just leave for you to wrestle with. And we'll call it a night.